0: The Tiger Tamer Who Went to See from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com.
1: Before we get started, we want to tell you a bit about the sponsor of this week's History Extra podcast, Warner Hotels. If you're looking to escape to a picturesque corner of the UK for a few days, Warner Hotels has just the thing for you. Each hotel offers everything you could possibly need for the perfect weekend away. From unrivaled leisure facilities and inspiring live entertainment, to delicious dining experiences and plenty of history for you to uncover. If this sounds like your kind of getaway, Warner Hotels is now offering a series of exciting weekend packages in 2024. Each three-night stay is at one of three historic hotels, with dinner, bed and breakfast included, plus a whole itinerary of fascinating talks and Q&As with a selection of BBC history experts, such as Tracy Borman, Susanna Lipscomb and James Holland. So what are you waiting for? Book your break now at warnerhotels.co.uk. <laughs>
2: Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Rob Attar, the magazine's editor. In today's episode, you'll hear from the historian and author Adrian Tinniswood, whose recent book, Behind the Throne, explores the domestic world that supported British monarchs over the centuries. He spoke to our section editor,
0: Ellie Cawthorne.
3: So, Adrian, what made you want to delve into the private lives of Britain's monarchs?
0: That's a tough one. That's a tough one. I, I wrote a book a couple of years ago called The Long Weekend, which was about life in the country house between the wars. And I wrote a chapter in that about the royal family's country houses, about how George V, George VI lived at Sandringham and how the how the, the royal offspring lived at Balmwell and, and Fort Belvedere. And when I was doing that, I started to wonder exactly how, how those houses functioned and how they were different, how the social structures were different from the traditional sort of you know, aristocracy. And the more I thought about it, the more intrigued I got. I mean, I, I years ago, I used to work with Heritage Lottery Fund. And because of that, I met most of the Royals well, met. I mean, I was presented. <laughs> <laughs> I nodded, let's say. <laughs> there, was, there was one very bitter occasion when I, I remember being presented to Princess Anne. And uh, um, it was at the opening of a big record office. And she said to me, I was because with the Heritage Lottery Fund and we would funded it. So she said to me, So you, you've paid for all this, have you? And I said, Well, not me personally, Mom. Big mistake. She just went hmm, and moved on down the line. That was it. That was my first <laughs> lesson in not talking back. Uh, but I, I, I just got intrigued. By the way, you know, there's always an equerry. There's always a lady, you know, the lady in waiting, and she's waiting to pick up that posy of flowers or the sort of soft toy from the kid. And the equerry's there, whispering in somebody's ear that it's time. You know, we've got to keep the schedule. We've got to move on. And I just wonder how they got there. And what their tradition, what their pedigree was, you know, how how the royal family worked, if you like. Not in any political way. And, and my my new book isn't political. It's not about um affairs of state. It is about how the royal family, how the social structures that surround the royal family over the last 500 years, how they've changed and and, and what they are really.
3: You mentioned equerries and ladies' maids, but can you give us an idea of swathes of different people who who have worked in the royal household over it, time. It's,
0: it's enormous, you know. The the I mean, even today, um, and I only touch in the book on 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 the uh, on contemporary practice. But even today, Queen Elizabeth II employs twelve hundred in her household, twelve hundred people. Um, uh, Charles II employed about fifteen hundred medieval kings and certainly the Tudors employed something up to 2,000. And you've got, you've got everything from, from really important figures of state. I mean, the three great offices are the Lord Chamberlain, who looked after above stairs, basically, in the royal palaces, the Lord Steward, who looked after below stairs, who looked after the kitchens and the accounts and all that kind of thing. And then the master of the horse, who looked after the horses. And, of course, there were an awful lot of horses. I think Elizabeth I has like 250 horses in the stables. So actually feed, feeding those is, was quite important. So you've got those three departments. But within those, you've got grooms and pages and ushers. You've got scullery boys. And one of the themes that emerged when I was doing the research a constant theme almost, is that nobody knew who was there. Nobody knew, you know, that you've you've always got monarchs. Charles II was really hacked off because there were strangers wandering around the palace all the time. You know, we think of it as, we think of a royal palace like a a sort of glorified Downton, you know, like a well-run, well-oiled machine. In fact, it was chaos. You know, there were people coming and going all the time. There was something like, in Charles II's Palace in Whitehall, there were 18 kitchens. And Charles II didn't know where they were feeding. All he knew was was that he was paying for them. And that's another theme that comes out, another theme that's constantly coming out. It costs too much.
3: You detail a lot of the rituals and the regulations and the formal ceremonies of royal life. Um, Can you tell us about some of the most bizarre or strange that you came
0: across? I suppose that they, they what we would consider bizarre are, are the, the late medieval and Tudor ones where, you know, where the sovereign is basically God's representative on earth. And so, for example, I mean, the Tudor kings, their beds will be made every evening. You know, you, we see a four-poster bed in one of the royal palaces now and think, oh, you know, that, that's just how it was like. It wasn't. I mean, the beds were stripped every day. They were made up every night, and as they were made up, they were made up with an enormous amount of ritual, you know where, where an usher's hands touched the royal sheet, they would then kiss their hands and genuflect because this was a sacred thing. So that sort of ritual, and, and there's a reason for the ritual, I think, which is another of the themes that came through in the book, was, was that the ritual is there to separate us from them. You know, a king or a queen is not just like us. They are special. And if they were just like us, then what would be the point? Even today it's true. You know, you you can aspire to be a prime minister. You can't aspire to be a king or a queen. You know, they're different. And there is a mystical quality still, I think. I mean, it comes out in the coronation service where where the sovereign is anointed. You know, and and it's a mystical union of, 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 of a human being with God it's you know, it's a very strange thing, a very strange thing a very, very puzzling thing in lots of ways.
3: I think the later chapters um of the book are really interesting in terms of that balance between what we want from our monarchs, whether we want them to be a public figure, or whether we want to also know about their private lives. You highlight how that's it's a very difficult balance to to keep going,
0: yeah, it, it, it's very hard, I think. I mean, you see it, obviously, I mean, Monarchs come in for criticism, and how? I mean, in the in the Middle Ages, they didn't tend to come in for criticism because if you criticised the monarch, you got your head chopped off. That's A simplification, but you know, but certainly, I mean, George IV was constantly criticised for his bad behaviour, and interestingly, Victoria was constantly criticised for her spending. Uh, the 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 criticism usually is not directly of the monarch; it's of his or her advisers, you know, they're, they're being bad. Rather like sort of Charles I was never at fault. It was always his advisers, Parliament said. Uh, but um, by the mid-19th century, I mean, Victoria's household was coming in for a lot of criticism for its spending. People were saying, you know, why did Queen Victoria pay £1,200 a year to an hereditary grand falconer when she didn't have any falcons? Why was she paying hundreds of pounds a year to the master of the tennis court when there wasn't one she didn't play tennis? So uh, that kind of criticism grows, I think, and 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 the, the monarch has to be more and more conscious of it and steer a path through it. But again, it's not the monarch that's steering the path. Usually it is.
3: It's already come up twice or three times in this interview, and it comes up again and again and again in the book, this idea that the monarchs just simply couldn't stay on budget. Why was that? Is it because it was badly managed?
0: It, it is, I mean, a lot of it is about, about bad management or about an inability to manage a vast and vague and sort of amorphous household. As I said, if you've got a couple of thousand people, I mean, the Palace of Whitehall, which until 1698 is, you know, from Tudor from times through, is the primary royal residence, it, it, it wasn't patrolled. People wandered in and out. I mean, there the were kind of brothels in corners. There were beggars, there were shops. You know, there were barber shops and milliners and things just set up stationers all over the place. And people came and went. In theory, you've got a strict, most monarchs had strict um, household regulations about who was entitled to eat in the palace, about who was entitled to candles, who was entitled to kind of, you know, clothing allowances. And that was all set down. And the porters had lists of who was allowed in and who wasn't. And it just didn't work. A senior courtier would have servants, his servants would have servants. They would have mates, you know, come around, come around for tea kind of thing. And there was never any real control. You've constantly got monarchs and their advisors and their, their, their Lord stewards, usually, who who are the people who are, are sort of doing the books. You've got monarchs saying, you know, I've got a household of 1,500 I'm feeding 3,000 people. How is that? And nobody could say... And then there's stuff like, um, I mean, Lord Burley was always going on, um, Elizabeth Elizabeth's um, uh, treasurer. Elizabeth I was always going on about the fact that people nicked the pewter. You know, they 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 had a right to eat in the palace, but they didn't tend to eat in the palace. They would go and get their their dinner, and take it away with them, and they wouldn't bring the plates back, and it would cost in a fortune. It was costing an absolute fortune. Um, they would drift off sometimes. They wouldn't do. They wouldn't um, do uh, their duty. They were supposed to be in the early part. They're they're supposed to be there all the time. There's no, you, you, as a courtier, you don't have any time off. Unless the monarch lets you go. And, and certainly if that was true for the body servants. But they they just did. So that that chaos, that barely controlled chaos, is a theme right through, certainly into the 19th century, I think.
3: Of course, at the center of the story are the monarchs themselves. How much did the character of um, each monarch kind of determine the character of the household?
0: I think that, that's a really interesting question. It does vary a lot, you know. Um, one thing that determines the, uh, the character of the household is gender. You know, Elizabeth I uh, has, you know, has her women of the bedchamber and her maids of honour become much more important and they become gatekeepers. Queen, a, a very good example of this, is, of course, is Queen Anne and Sarah Churchill, the Duchess of Marlborough, who is uh, mistress of the robes and keeper of the privy purse to Queen Anne, and who controls her. She's a gatekeeper, she controls who gets access to the queen. And so often with courtiers, that's where their power lies. In Charles II's court is um, uh, in Charles II's court, you, you've got this succession of mistresses. Gosh, did Charles II have mistresses? they actually have a, a political role in that they control access to the sovereign. And if they don't control access to the sovereign, they can certainly put a word in his ear, you know, uh, uh, the, the, during the pillow, pillow talk sort of thing. You know, so somebody having access to one of Charles II's mistresses has indirect access to, to Charles II. So in, in a household that's... that's. Um, uh, uh, fairly heavy on mistresses, as Charles II was, then the women have a, you know have a much more power. I think much more control.
3: One of the interesting um, sections about access to the monarchs I found was about George III, because of course we we think of monarchs as all powerful, but George actually ended up having a lot of his power stripped away by his household could you tell us a bit about that story yeah i
0: mean it's it, it's it's a terribly sad one i he, think he's manic depressive and then and then uh, he clearly has some kind of psychosis and and medical st- historians are still you know always arguing about you know was it porphyria was it was it bipolar what was it schizophrenia whatever what whatever it was he wasn't very well i mean you know he had he was delusional he had um, a, a disinhibited behaviour. I mean, appallingly, everybody was embarrassed about the way George III would behave, and you, you you get this real constitutional problem. George III is head of state, you know, he is the king, and yet he's not in control of, of his own actions. So yes, gradually, I mean, the, the 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 classic example of control being taken away from him is when you know the the, the Georgian equivalent of a psychiatrist, uh, the mad doctor Francis Willis, is brought in and given more or less free range to treat the king. And he puts him in a straitjacket. He threatens him with a straitjacket. He, 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 he will come along when the king um, kicks up. He will, da- he will literally dangle the straitjacket in front of the king. And then you've got issues about, about oh, the classic was the king, uh, in order for um, a regent to act in place of the king, the king has to sign the regency bill. But if the king isn't capable, uh, if he isn't legally responsible, how can he sign an act allowing somebody else to take over? And it was a tremendous constitutional problem in the, in the late uh, 18th century. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Re- researching the book and writing the book has left me with an enormous amount of respect for how hard it is to be a sovereign, even with all the privilege and all the wealth It's a blooming difficult job. That's what it's, that's what left me realising. Time for another
1: quick chat about this week's sponsor, Warner Hotels. If you want to get away in 2024, why not book a weekend package at one of Warner's most historic hotels? There's Little Coat House, which is a stunning Tudor Manor in Hungerford. Studley Castle, a beautiful 19th century building in Warwickshire. Or Home Lacey, a huge Herefordshire mansion that was once visited by Charles I. Whichever location you choose, you'll be able to enjoy a whole weekend of live talks from your favourite historians during your stay. Find out more and book your break now at warnerhotels.co.uk. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight saving time is once again upon us, as is the debate about whether it's truly needed or not. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter. Because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com extra. That's ZipRecruiter.com extra. One of your chapters on the
3: Georgians is... Somewhat ironically titled "Happy Families."
0: Oh Lord, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah.
3: <laughs> why? Can you tell us a bit about the intergenerational disputes they had? Because it seemed like um, no generation could get on with the with the
0: no, George, previous or former. The, George II second um, hated his dad. George the um, uh, first blamed him for uh, uh, his mother's um, incarceration. His mother left George the first and was. Uh, tried to elope and was uh, basically imprisoned for the rest of her life. George I wouldn't hear her her name spoken. A lot of it was to do with with money, you know, it always is. In 1697, Parliament realised that the Crown was not liable for the costs of government. Until then, notionally, the Crown... Pay, the Crown was the state, and therefore the Crown paid for everything. In 1697, the costs of government were, were hived off, and that's the beginning of the civil list. That's when Parliament agrees an allowance for the King. And then it was something like 700,000 I mean, pounds, a huge amount. And Parliament also allowed 100,000 pounds a year for the Prince of Wales uh, in, um, uh, in the 18th century, George I's Prince of Wales, so it became George II. When George II came to the throne, he refused to allow his own son that £100,000. He kept it for himself and gave him a lot less than that. And this was a, a, a source of, of a, a sore point with Frederick, as he was, Frederick, Prince of Wales. There's also this kind of vying for popularity. And you know, if, if the king supports one political party, the Prince of Wales supports the other. You know, they're competing almost. It's that classic, almost Greek tragedy, you know, the the son trying to overthrow the father. And it got really nasty. Um, You know, George I threw his own son out of the palace. George II threw his own son, Frederick, out of the palace. They set up rival establishments.
3: Do you think that George IV, Mm. um, especially when he was Prince Regent, does he win the crown bit of a terrible pun there sorry about that <laughs> for the most extravagant um monarch
0: yeah he's he's i mean re- i'm in two minds about george the 4th cuz part of i mean he has the most amazing taste he is uh, and frankly a lot of our monarchs don't have great taste didn't have great taste but george the 4th really did that's the only redeeming feature he was a, a really bad person <laughs> Um, extravagant, uh, um, uh, vulgar in, in, in lots of ways, um, uh, tremendously unkind, I mean, famously unkind, uh, his queen. It didn't start well when, when um, he was so drunk on their wedding night that he lay unconscious on the floor until he woke up the next morning, hopped into bed with her. Um, their only daughter was born nine months later, and it, as far as I know, that's the last time they ever slept together. He, when he was told he had to marry her, he said, um, uh, if I must, I must. One damn frow as good as another. I mean, this was not a nice man, but this is the guy who, um, for whom Buckingham Palace was built. You know, his father had bought Buckingham House. George the Fourth, who had a house at Carlton, um, Carlton House Terrace, was basically a bit fed up because people were peering in the window all the time. So, as regent, he um, he had what he called a little a little cottage by the sea. Uh, John Nash built him a cottage by the sea. That was Brighton Pavilion. If you've ever seen Brighton Pavilion, anything less like a little cottage by the sea, you could not imagine. Uh, He also um, uh, commissioned uh, Geoffrey Wyattville to modernise Windsor Castle. Most of the medieval bits you see at Windsor Castle were actually put in the 19th century by Geoffrey Wyattville. Fantastic work. And he um, commissioned John Nash to modernise and extend Buckingham House. He said he didn't want a palace, he wanted a little pied de terre And again, you know, as pied de terres go, the thing is, if you're going to have a palace, you have a palace. And that's, you know, the, 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 John Nash's Buckingham Palace was amazing. It went massively over budget. Uh, Nash enabled that by the simple expedient. It used to... Send a, a note to the Treasury saying, I'm you know, I'm going over budget by so much. If I don't hear back from you by next week, I assume it's all right. And of course, the way the civil service worked, you know, <laughs> they never did. <laughs> so uh, and it was, you know, it was incredible. You had um the Marble Arch, of course, was the triumphal entrance to Buckingham Palace. That was that was the gatehouse, you know, it was a, a massive, wide open space. I, I've got a lot of time for Buckingham Palace for the, 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 the existing one, but it's a closed-in space. It looks away from its public. You know, it hides from its public because first uh, Edward blow and then um, uh, Aston Webb uh, built that. Uh, initially, it was it was round three sides of a courtyard, and the fourth side was open to the mall. Um, in the nineteenth and the early twentieth century, that that fourth side was closed off. So, as I say, it doesn't it doesn't proclaim itself to the public in the way that George IV's Buckingham Palace would have done. It was never quite finished for George IV. George IV died in 1830, uh, and William IV hated it. Um, He tried to give it away when Parliament burned down in 1834. He had the Speaker, he went to see the the smouldering ruins and walked round with the Speaker of the the House of Commons and and offered him Buckingham Palace as a House of Parliament. And and he said, I mean, this is a permanent gift, mind you, a permanent gift. He's desperate to get rid of it. But Victoria liked it, so that's that's, that's why it stayed.
3: Do you think that closing off of Buckingham Palace is symbolic of a change in the Royal Household, in that they were becoming more private and more closed? I do.
0: I think, um, I mean, Victoria famously is good and bad is is a bourgeois queen in that she, you know, she espouses middle-class values and middle-class respect, you know, that Victorian notion of respectability is so important to Victoria and to Albert. Uh, and um, there is a, a kind of retreat almost. There's part of it, of course, is because there's a compact between between parliament and crown, if you like. The, the, George IV was the last to try and be a king, and Parliament just sort of, you know, they, they just gave them a good slap and said, we won't pay if you do that. You know, we won't pay for you to behave in that way. That was changing because what you do see uh, 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 over the last 150 years, a lot of the traditional courtier roles have been politicised. So they are political appointments. And what that means, like at the end of the 19th century, when, when the Disraeli Gladstone ministries were swapping every two minutes, you'd have somebody coming into post and then going out again. I mean, the 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 Conservative Duchess of Buccleuch was Mistress of the Robes three times. You know, she'd barely sort of sat down, and she was off again. In fact, the Liberals didn't get a chance to, to appoint Mistress of the Robes because you know, their ministries you know, move, fell so quickly. If senior roles like that become political, there's no continuity. And what that meant was that other roles become more prominent i mean the the real difference i think in the last century is the importance of the private secretary the private secretary is the kind of court the top dog very definitely he and it is always a he there's not but there's never been a female um, private secretary but from and i mean until george the time until 1805 i think monarchs wrote all their own letters you can't think that you know, that george george iii wrote all his own letters Um, It was only when he became blind, his eyesight started to fail, that he appointed a private secretary to to write his letters for him. And there was uproar. You know, the idea that somebody who wasn't a member of the Privy Council, wasn't a member of the Cabinet, should be able to see, um, you know, the, the, the red box or whatever the equivalent was. People said it was wrong. But he, he stuck to his guns. Victoria had a private secretary. I mean, later on, Henry Ponsonby and her aim was an important figure. But the private secretary becomes more and more important because that's that's a, a monarch's appointment and they can control it. You know, it's not the, the prime minister saying who your secretary is going to be. And they're hugely important, I think, uh, you know, for those of us who, who devotees of the crown, um, you know, I, I mean, Tommy Lascelles, Ronald Lascelles, who, who figures so prominently in the first season of, of of The Crown. You know, he he was he's one of the, the, the most important figures in the 20th century royal history. I think he, he's he's also great fun. I mean, this is the guy who he comes across in The Crown as being you know really sort of snooty and and, and stuff. He knew his own mind. I'll tell you, I'll give you that at, at um, George VI's coronation in uh, 1937 when they're all queuing to get out of Westminster Abbey. And it was raining, so the cars were kind of put... And everybody's getting really fed up. And um, uh, Tommy LaSalle is there in his ceremonial dress with his wife. And he gets so fed up that he whips out his ceremonial sword, carves a doorway through the marquee they're queuing in, and just walks out the (laughs) side. He's the one who said he um, he, he hated world garden parties because he said they they always reminded him of the day of judgment because he saw so many people he thought were dead. But he is also he's in charge. I mean, he's in charge of George VI very definitely, uh, and indeed he was. I mean, of he was private secretary to um, Edward VIII when Edward VIII was the Prince of Wales, and he uh, he didn't hesitate to give. The Prince of Wales a real dressing down whenever. I mean, he really didn't like the Prince of Wales. He gave him a, a huge telling off after one of his many indiscretions. And the poor old Edward, David, everyone called him David, said, Tommy, you're probably right. I, I suppose I'm just not the right kind of person to be a Prince of Wales, am I? Which is sad but true, you know. Tommy's remembered later when uh, the Prince of Wales, the king, went, as uh, he was, Edward VIII went to his mother, went to Queen Mary at Marlborough House to tell... Tell her about Wallace Simpson, and the Queen said, "Edward, um, what have you thought about the impact this is going to have on the nation and the empire?" And he said, "Don't you understand that nothing is as important as my her, her happiness and mine?" And Thomas Hills could never forgive that.
3: If you could go back and be part of a royal household.
0: Oh, when do you gosh. think would
3: be the most fascinating <laughs> time?
0: Oh.
3: And when would be the worst? Who who had kind
0: of... Oh, they've all, the thing is, they've all got something. I mean, I'd, you know, if I was single again, I'd love to be part of Charles II's <laughs> household, I think, because, gosh, that guy knew how to party. As, indeed, did George IV, you know? Um, but, but to be part of Elizabeth I's household, I think... They've got it. I, I'm, I'm fascinated by the way that Elizabeth the you know, went on progress. And when she went on progress, she took her entire court with her, and to you know that that sort of degree of organisation for a large part of her reign of spending a summer, you know, showing herself to her subjects, if you like, you know, be, being seen and um, uh, you know reminding people that there was uh, there was a monarch. And you've, I mean, you think about the organisation. You've got something like two hundred carts for a start. You know, you've got people. You've got harbingers going ahead to sort of make sure everything's all right. You've you've got a court of maybe twelve hundred people descending on somebody's house for the night, and they couldn't all be be a comedy. You know, it couldn't all be. Well, I mean, it's funny. So Henry Lee, when um, he was told the Queen was coming to visit, said, he "Just said no, she's not. I can't afford it. <laughs> I can't afford it." And the, the the classic was the Earl of Lincoln, I think, who. Um, the Queen uh, had the house in Chelsea, I think, and she was on her way to see him, and he just pretended he was there. There's this notion that that, that a, a visit from the Queen could double your income overnight with perks. You know, there's a famous quote which I think is it Lord Burley says to Christopher Hatton, "They've both built big houses," and um, Burley writes to to Hatton. Um, God give us both long life to enjoy her, for whom we have exceeded our purses in these. In other words, they were investing because they wanted the queen. to... Because you could get, you could get a monopoly, you could get a, you know, a court appointment that could double your income, but it could cost you an absolute fortune, and there was no guarantee you were going to um, get anything out of it. Must have been quite exciting because the court was, it was also the government.
3: And. Um- Having written the book, how has it left you feeling about um, the monarchy in terms of what it might have been like to be part of the royal household, and also um, kind of led to any surprises?
0: Yeah, I'm 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 left with a kind of slightly bewildered respect for them. I'm re- researching the book and writing the book has left me with an enormous amount of respect for how hard it is to be a sovereign. How hard, even with all the privilege and, you know, and all the support networks you've got and all the wealth, it's a blumming difficult job. That's what it's, that's what it's left me realising.
2: That was Adrian Tinniswood. Behind the Throne, a domestic history of the royal household, is out now, published by Jonathan Cape. And don't forget to check out historyextra.com for a wealth of royal history. Thanks for listening. We'll return on Thursday when Tessa Dunlop will be discussing Bletchley Park.
1: Before you go, one final word about this week's sponsor, Warner Hotels. If you fancy a break in 2024, you can now choose from three fantastic weekend packages at some of the most historic Warner Hotels. For instance, Littlecote House is set in a stunning location in Hungerford, which has played host to Romans, a civil war army and the planning of the D-Day landings. Meanwhile, Studley Castle in Warwickshire was used as a training camp for the Women's Land Army during the World Wars. Find out more and book your break now at warnerhotels.co.uk.